thank you for tuning in to Balanced Black Girl. My name is Les. I am your host, and I appreciate you sharing space with me today. So on this podcast, I produce mini seasons or series where we'll focus on a central theme or topic for six weeks. And today we're kicking off our new life series in honor of spring, the season of new life, and in honor of Black Maternal Health Awareness. So in this series, we're going to be diving into reproductive health, fertility, motherhood, supporting the mothers in our lives, and giving birth to new ideas. It's a series that's been on my heart to share with you for a while, and this is probably the most thoughtful, intentional series that we've put forth to date. So I really hope that you're able to tune in for all six weeks of informative conversations that are really important for us to have. At the time that this episode is being released, it's April 2022. April is National Minority Health Month, which is dedicated to advancing health equity in the U.S. And the week of April 11th through 17th is Black Maternal Health Week, which aims to amplify the voices of Black mamas to center reproductive health and birth justice. And I'm really proud to say that Balanced Black Girl is going to be a sponsor of Black Maternal Health Week. And we're going to be donating a portion of all of our ad revenue from this series to the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, which is a Black woman-led alliance that drives policy change, research, and advancements in care for Black mothers and their families. So you can help support by tuning into the podcast, sharing these episodes with your people. Wellness just doesn't happen on an individual level. It happens on a collective level. And the more people who hear these messages, the better. So we're kicking off the series with an open conversation about understanding and demystifying reproductive health with Dr. Tiffany Jones, OBGYN and reproductive endocrinologist based in Dallas, Texas. After earning her medical degree, Dr. Jones completed her residency at USC Medical Center in Los Angeles. She then gained a wealth of knowledge in fertility research and patient care after completing a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She's earned many awards, including induction into the Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honor Society, D Magazine Best Doctor 2020 and 2021, and Texas Rising Stars List 2020 and 2021. And she's also on the medical board for Flow Health. So in this episode, we talk about everything from testing you can ask for to better understand your reproductive status, how fertility challenges can present differently in Black folks, the egg freezing and IVF process, and what happens after the age of 35 that we've heard so much about. We also talk about how conditions such as PCOS and fibroids can impact fertility. We get into all of this. I also want to acknowledge that at times, some of the language in this episode is very gendered and focused on cisgender experiences. And as the host and facilitator in this space, I really take the responsibility seriously and want this to be an inclusive space and will do better about making sure we use more gender inclusive language in future episodes. Okay, that's enough from me. We have a jam-packed episode to get to, so let's get into the interview so that you can hear from Dr. Tiffany Jones. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for joining me at Balance Flat Girl. I'm really excited to have you today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being here with you. 
Absolutely. Well, I could not think of a better way to kick off this new series talking about reproductive health, fertility, motherhood, than bringing on yourself. I mean, you are a very celebrated doctor. You are a leader in your space as a reproductive endocrinologist. I'm having a hard time saying those big words because I'm a, a marketer. <laughs> I'm a marketer, not a doctor. But I just could not think of a better way to kick off this series than having a conversation with you. So thanks again. You're so welcome. Yeah. So I would love to learn a little bit more about your background and what made you want to work in the reproductive health space. So to become an OB-GYN, you go through, you know, undergrad, medical school, and then you get to go to residency. And I chose OB-GYN because I loved women's health. I loved that, you know, you could kind of go throughout someone's life with them. I like the surgical aspect of it, but you have a real relationship with your patients, with women. Then when I did the residency, I got to get exposed to other subspecialties like urology or urogynecology, high-risk pregnancies, gynecology. But REI and infertility was just like a wow factor. It's relatively new. The oldest um, IVF baby is only 42 years old. So it's very new, very new field, um, lots of new advances. So I felt like I could still be on the forefront of like a new frontier. But the women who usually come to these for these services are really these goal-driven people who have you know, just kind of done everything they wanted to do with their life and sometimes had to put family on maybe a back burner. And then when they're finally ready for someone to tell them that they're infertile is really hard. And for a physician, for me being their physician to help navigate them through that course in their life and help them achieve the family that they desire is just so fulfilling. You know, I couldn't ask for a better job. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Helping people be able to to create their families is definitely a very special experience. So from a reproductive health standpoint, you know, I would love to talk a little bit more about what that looks like kind of throughout the lifespan. So we have listeners who are various ages. We have some folks who are a little bit on the younger side and may not necessarily be wanting to plan their families intentionally. I also have quite a few listeners who are my age, maybe in their 30s, interested in family planning. But I would love to talk about ways that we can kind of understand our fertility no matter where we're at. So are there insights that we can get either when it's when we visit our gynecologist annually or from understanding our menstrual cycle that can just give us kind of an idea of what's going on when it comes to our fertility health? Absolutely. I think the first piece of advice I would give to your listeners and to all women is just really to understand our fertility's natural life course. You know, we are born with all of the eggs we're going to have as opposed to men who make new sperm. No woman makes a new egg. So when we're born and we're you know going through this life, we're losing eggs. Our fertility is going to peak and then it's going to decline. And I think that's a hard concept for us to grasp. Even before you get to an OB-GYN, this should be taught you know, when we're learning about our menstrual cycles in high school and middle school, is that we don't, you know, like you should know, you don't produce more eggs. I, I mean, it is like really completely, my patients are gobsmacked when I say that because people don't know that. And so it's just important and understanding that and understand that 
we are all going to menopause and menopause has a natural age. The average age is 51, but it's considered normal after 40. So when I have women who are older who come and their ovarian reserve or their egg count is lower, um, it is no surprise to me because I understand that this is a natural course of life. And if we understand that, then we can prepare ourselves better and plan. Just like I know to get this job, I need to do X, Y, and Z to make this family. I need to know, okay, If I'm in my mid-30s, I need to make some decisions. Now, the conversations and the testing that someone can undergo when they're trying to make these decisions or get more information about you know themselves personally, because those are statistics, right? It's the average age is 51. But for you personally, there are tests that you can ask your OB guide or your family medicine. There are even companies where you can go direct and order them yourself. Uh, So AMH or anti-mullerian hormone is a fairly new hormone um, that we run, but I use it all the time. Every patient that comes into my office gets it. And it tells us how the ovaries are functioning and specifically how the follicles in the ovary that hold our eggs, how they're functioning. And it usually should be around 1.5 to 2.5. If it's lower, then that really should let someone know, okay, my ovarian aging is probably a little bit faster than I would have predicted, or it's lower and you should anticipate it being lower because you're, you know, in your 40s or your mid 40s or your 50s. An ultrasound can also let us know what those follicles are doing. So those are two very easy testing modalities to give you some information. The caveat is you shouldn't use that information and have it scare you or make you fearful because what the studies show is that an AMH that is very low does not mean someone is infertile, okay? It just tells us that our eggs may be running out. But I know women who had very low AMHs and got pregnant spontaneously. Okay, because fertility is really you have to try. And so if you're not trying, you can't really get that diagnosis, but you can use it as long as you're using it to empower your decisions like freezing eggs or banking embryos or just saying, okay, maybe I'm not going to wait so long, but don't let it say all is lost because that is not how these tests can be used. It cannot predict when you're going to go into menopause and it cannot predict who is going to be infertile and who's not going to be infertile, but it can give you a little bit of information if it's normal or abnormal on maybe how you prepare yourself. That is super helpful to be able to to pinpoint those different areas that we can talk to our doctors about. I really loved what you said about not being fearful, because I think sometimes conversations regarding fertility can be fearful and seeing this knowledge as power and giving us just information so that we know what to do and what's going on with our bodies and what to do with that information can be really empowering. So I I love that you said that. So you mentioned a couple of things just now, just around some potential options that people could consider if they, you know, wanted to have children, uh, but maybe weren't quite ready yet. Things like egg freezing, or I believe you also use the term embryo banking, mm-hmm. which I'm not familiar with, but I have a feeling I'm about to become familiar with uh, <laughs> when you tell us more about it. <laughs> so uh, egg freezing is actually, I think, a, a process that is being talked about more. I know some people who are interested in those options. I've followed people online who are going through that procedure. 
And so it's interesting to see people document their experiences with that because I think that that also Mm -hmm. helps the rest of us be more informed. And so I, I appreciate when people share that. Can you walk us through you know, when someone may want to consider doing something like that or what a good, who a good candidate could be for those types of procedures or options? Yeah. So I personally think that egg freezing should be an option for everyone. And I I emphasize the word option. I don't think that every woman needs to freeze their eggs. Absolutely not. Okay. Because a lot of people, even if you freeze your eggs, won't ever need them. And it's not being done because you know you're going to be infertile, but it's really to give you a little bit of peace of mind and, a, and to do a little bit of due diligence if you're on a life course that, you know, I'm going to get this law degree. It's going to take me this long. I got to buy this house first and I need this car first. I want my first Chanel bag. You know, you might have all these stipulations on how you want to navigate this one life that we get. And that is your prerogative. I'm all for that. But because we know that there is a natural course that our biological clock might not line up to what we desire, the due diligence is, let me do something that may pause this and give me a better chance if I am going to wait. Okay? People used to have babies in their early 20s, right? Now we're having babies in our 30s, mid 30s, even 40s, some people 50s. I can't get a 50 year old pregnant with her own eggs if she starts at 50. But if she froze her eggs at 30, then she probably can get pregnant at 50 if that's her desire. And so that's the that's the purpose of just knowing that option because sometimes life just escapes us, right? You're just going, you know, doing your business, living it up, traveling, and you look up and it's like, oh, I'm 35. <laughs> oh, I'm still single, you know, and the biological clock doesn't pause unless you press pause. And that's what egg freezing can potentially do. You freeze those eggs at that age. Right. And so it would be better to do it in your late 20s, early 30s, because your egg quality at that time in your life is really good. Right. That's the ideal time to start your family biologically, but it might not be emotionally, financially, or any other number of reasons. But if you push pause at that time, those eggs are that age. And so if you want to come back, when you do meet that partner, or if you want to pursue it as a single mom by choice, you have something that if you need them, and again, the emphasis is on if, you have really given yourself a better chance. Embryo banking is taking it another step further. Usually, women who are either, you know, like you could be married, you can have a partner, a life partner, you can just be someone who, you know, knows you want to do this by yourself, but are not, you're not, you're still not ready to get pregnant. It means you fertilize those eggs instead of freezing them at the egg stage, which still has a potential to be fertilized with any source of sperm. If you make the embryos, then we know we have embryos. Eggs, we don't know if they're going to make embryos. We have to thaw them and then fertilize them. And it's not one egg, one embryo. Sometimes even at 20, six eggs may get you one live birth. But if you have embryos, you're much closer to that. So usually I tell women who are coming in their late 30s and early 40s with the idea of still they want to wait, that you may consider 
banking embryos to protect your own you know, genetics, because that's what we're doing. You know, it's not that a man, because he makes new sperm, he can have a baby in his seventies if he wants to, but us, no, it's not going to happen. So if you want to protect your genetic material to make it more likely that at a later age, you will have a biological child, if that's important to you, then making embryos later may be more beneficial because you know if they're viable or not. You don't freeze eggs at 40, thaw them at 43, and then find out that those 40-year-old eggs weren't viable in the first place because now you're back at square one. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. And if someone were to freeze their eggs and decide, you know, maybe a few years later that they wanted to use them, what does that process like? Is it essentially like experiencing IVF? How do those eggs typically get fertilized and then used once an embryo is created? Absolutely. IVF or in vitro fertilization is a process by which we stimulate someone's ovaries to produce more eggs than they typically produce. A natural ovulatory cycle produces one, maybe two eggs. In an IVF cycle, we're trying to stimulate all the resting eggs that someone may have. And like, let's use someone who's like 25. They may have 25, 30 resting follicles. So there's a potential to bank that many eggs at that at that age. And remember I said, you know, sometimes it may be six eggs to get to one embryo. So the medications that we use to stimulate those follicles are hormones that your body naturally produces, but we have to give them to you in a much higher dose because your body only wants one or two and I want 25. <laughs> So you take those medications usually for two weeks. So it's the same as if you're trying to get pregnant with IVF, if you're trying to get eggs for um, for egg freezing, or if you're trying to get eggs for embryo banking, you all you have to take those hormones, you have to stimulate the ovaries. And then the second half of the process is after the eggs are retrieved, it's what you do with them. Do you freeze them at the egg stage? Do you make embryos and freeze those for later use? Or do you make embryos and then transfer them back into the uterus? If you freeze them at the egg stage, they have to be thawed they have to survive the thaw. And because eggs are a single cell, not all of them may survive the thaw. Usually it's about a 90% thaw rate. So if you freeze 10, you may get nine back. Then you fertilize them with a sperm source. So it could be a partner, it can be a known donor, it can be an anonymous donor, but the sperm is usually placed directly into the egg uh, so that you can assure that fertilization has a chance. And if the embryo is formed, it's because the egg and the sperm were able to take the next steps of life. And then that embryo is then cultured out to grow and then potentially either genetically tested because we can do that and frozen, or it's put back into the womb to helpfully make a child. Got it. Thank you for walking us through that. So it sounds like kind of a similar process for those methods at the beginning to get those eggs stimulated Mm -hmm. and retrieved. And then what's done with those eggs after they're retrieved is kind of the difference in, in those avenues. Absolutely. Got it. And is it possible to have a difference between someone's like biological age and reproductive age? So if someone say, you know, is 35, but their follicles are like on and popping. 
<laughs> would that be mm-hmm. like having a, a slightly younger reproductive age and vice versa? So the quantity versus the quality is kind of what you're mm-hmm. saying, mm-hmm. right? Really age is the best indicator of success. So if I had a 45-year-old whose ovaries was on and popping, her success rates would still be low because the age trumps all. If I had a 45-year-old who had very poor ovarian reserve and one who has very good ovarian reserve, then yeah, the good ovarian reserve would be better off in that 45-year-old age group if I could predict which one would get pregnant. But if I'm looking at overall, it's much more likely that it would be successful in someone who's younger around 30 than someone who's at the higher end of the spectrum to even undergo IVF. Quantity helps because the more eggs I have, the more chances I have of making an embryo and the more chances I have of making a normal embryo. But age, and that's why freezing eggs can be a very valuable tool because if you can freeze them at a younger age, it will just help a lot if you need them at an older age. But the people that I've gotten pregnant at an older age, yes, they've definitely had a better egg quality for their age or quantity for their age. Yeah, yeah. Super interesting. I just really, I love learning about this. So thank you so much for for these really thorough explanations. Along the same lines, you know, I'm, I would love to just talk a little bit more about fertility challenges and some of the different reasons that can happen and some of the options that people may have if they are trying to conceive but experiencing fertility challenges. So are there usually common reasons or causes that someone may be experiencing fertility challenges, whether is it like PCOS, is it, you know, fibroids, Mm -hmm. endometriosis, do those impact someone's fertility outcomes? Absolutely. Those are all infertility diagnoses. Not every woman with PCOS will have infertility, but PCOS is a um, endocrine disorder where women usually don't ovulate. So if you don't release an egg, then you're unlikely to conceive. Sometimes women with PCOS are ovulatory, especially if there's uh, different changes in diet and weight. Sometimes, you know, they may ovulate twice a year, but that's enough to get someone um, pregnant. But endometriosis, again, that's another one that uh, it's a kind of inflammatory disorder where the lining of the uterus has implanted outside of the uterus into the cavity or the peritoneal cavity where the organs are. And then the body recognizes that as abnormal tissue because it's not supposed to be there. It's supposed to be inside the uterus. So as the body's fighting it, it releases a lot of inflammatory cells because that's what fights things that are not supposed to be there like cancer or infection. So that can decrease success with fertility because as the body's fighting, sometimes it can leave behind scar tissue that can damage the delicate tissue of our fallopian tubes. And the fallopian tubes are the pathway by which eggs enter the uterus. So if those are damaged, then there's no access point. It doesn't happen in every woman. Some women, even with severe disease, can still get pregnant spontaneously, but it can make some people subfertile or even infertile. Fibroids, again, are another um, that you mentioned. 
that really the location, the number of fibroids, the size can all impact. Usually fibroids that are inside the womb where the baby would grow really severely impact implantation and can increase miscarriage rates. So they should be removed. If they're in the other layers, which is the muscle or the skin layer that's covering the uterus called the serosa, those usually don't cause too many problems unless they're close to the fallopian tube where they can block. Again, if it's blocked, how can the egg and the sperm meet? So yeah, there's a lot of different diagnoses. One that we didn't talk about is male factor. Mm -hmm. You know, either you're single, that's a male factor. You're in a same-sex relationship, that's a male factor. Or you have a partner and his sperm quality is poor. And for men, we would never know. You know, it's not that they have a menstrual cycle where it's like, oh, I haven't had a period in six months, something's missing, that you wouldn't know unless they're tested. And they never want to get tested. (laughs) So, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people have infertility. And again, age is something that really not every woman who is 40 will struggle with infertility, but it is quite common at that age. So aging and fertility is just something I really want people to take away from this podcast because it's too many times women come to me in their early and late 40s and they really just have no idea that they would ever have a struggle. Yeah, yeah, I I appreciate that. And, And that's why these conversations are so important. I also appreciate that you mentioned the male factor as well, because that's that's important. It is a very important ingredient in uh, creating a human. It's about 50% of it. <laughs> it is very important. It's, it's needed. And even though men are able to produce sperm throughout their lifespans, as they get older, does the quality of their sperm suffer? And is that also a factor? It can. Um, There's a lot of things, you know, as we age, sometimes different health things come into play. This is the difference between men and women is men usually have millions upon millions of sperm. We have one egg. So the ratio is so skewed that men, even at older ages, my father included, can have children. (laughs) It's like you get the right 25 year old and it's you know, it's not that hard. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, but yeah, there definitely uh, can be challenges as men age as well. It's just not as, you know, irreversible, I'll say, because with women, I cannot give more eggs. I cannot do it. And so once we've run out, you know, then we have to visit things like donor eggs. And for a lot of people, especially people that look like you and I, that's never an option we consider, you know, we don't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I I actually, that's the perfect segue to a question that I really wanted to ask you. Um, One, just to see if in your work, and I know you are far more knowledgeable about research than I am, uh, if it's true and to why you think it is. So I was reading in an article recently that studies indicated that Black women are maybe far more likely to experience fertility challenges than our white counterparts. And that two, if we do experience those fertility challenges, we're far less likely to seek fertility treatment options and interventions. Based off of your work, is that something that you've seen? I'm curious, one, if if we are more likely to experience fertility challenges, why that is. And two, you know, I I could guess maybe why we may be less likely to 
get some of those treatment options, but I would love to just hear your take on on that aspect as well. Yeah, I, I definitely think that those studies are accurate as far as the um, disproportionality between Black women and white women and the diagnosis of infertility. It does impact us more. And yes, we do access it less. Some of that is we may be referred less. Uh, we may not have access. We may not have any providers that you trust enough to, to see, or you feel you do try to get access or you do have someone and you feel dismissed. I get a lot of patients that have seen other people and, you know, it's just people don't understand how to talk to people. And, you know, just like other cultures, we say like, you know, this is culturally correct. Black people, we have a culture too. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm trying to meet everybody where they are, I never know why people don't think that you have to meet us right. where we are too. And I think that's why sometimes people go to people who look like them. So you don't have to explain every nuance. You know, I just had a patient who you know, she was just cheerful through everything. And, you know, even though her prognosis was super poor, I knew that this was a black woman who was trying to put on a brave face because the first time we met a really big challenge, she really broke and it broke my heart because I knew, you know, I knew she was teetering, you know, and I made sure I, I held her down because we were always the people who are trying to be superwoman and just to let her know you don't have to wear that you know, this is hard. It's hard to have these conversations about donors and it's a nuanced conversation, you know, and I come from that culture. So I know, I know what it is to, you know, be at a dinner table and grandma don't know what this is. And, you know, she got her comments and, you know, and you just, you have to deal with all that, you know, why haven't you had a baby yet? And why don't you have a man yet? You know, like I know what those are. I come from this culture. And so these conversations can be so open and honest and let people feel so secure that they don't feel like just a number. And because for black people, our culture, we don't, we don't like that. I don't want to feel like you don't see me, you don't hear me because it's happened too long and I won't take it. And that sometimes can, you know, you have one bad experience and you just say F it, you know, but what I need people to know is you don't have time sometimes to say F it. You got to be proactive because the year that you took a break may have been your best year to get success. So yeah, absolutely. Access can be a problem. Even when you have access, it can be a problem. Fibroids are very prevalent in African-Americans. We're never, we're not, I, I hate to say in totality or speak like that, but sometimes our diagnoses are late or, or women in general are put on birth control pills and you know, you're, not, you're not really thoroughly evaluated. And then so then you have a delayed diagnosis. And again, if I'm saying that the time, the age is the most important, we don't have time for delays. Or, oh, you have a fibroid. It needs to come out when you want to have a baby. But why you didn't ever had a conversation about mm-hmm. what age she should be really thinking about having a baby because she yeah. came to me at 44 yeah. with the same fibroid. So she didn't even have, ch- she didn't even have a chance to have a baby, not right. even an accident baby, you know? So she, you know, so it's just like these things, you know, 
not everybody understands them. I, I, I understand them. And so when I see a patient, you know, I really have to kind of navigate all those waters, even the waters outside of the textbook, because sometimes those are where you can save a life or in our case, make a life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my, I appreciate those insights for sure. And I think that they're important to talk about. And I think that's why the work you do is so important so that people can work with you and get the help they need if that's what they, what they choose to do. Mm-hmm. I know we also, we talked a little bit about fibroids just now, how they impact reproductive health outcomes. I also know that they do tend to be more prevalent for those of us who are Black people with uteruses. Do we also know why that is, why we have been more likely to experience fibroids? No, no one can really put a finger on it. I would assume that it would have to be something genetic, but we don't have exact genes or anything to target, but it is it is like 80% of us in our lifetime will have a fibroid or fibroids. I think a lot of research is needed to identify that. Um, another thing is, if it is genetic, you have to think about things that are weeded out of genes. Usually if it's life-threatening, then people don't survive to reproduce. But fibroids, you know, they don't usually kill you. And then women who can conceive, you know, so I, I just, I think it is, a genetic thing and we just have to do some more research to identify it. There's also like estrogen, it's it's a stimulant for fibroids to grow. All women have estrogen if they are ovulatory and not menopausal. So, you know, we're all set up to grow these type of tumors, but why it's disproportionately affecting black women, you know, we still just don't know. Some people think it could be vitamin D levels because we have melanin, it blocks vitamin D production. So that's a very good hypothesis. But, you know, I just haven't seen any solid data to say like, this is exactly why. Yeah, the vitamin D aspect is really interesting. That's a really interesting take. I would definitely be curious to see, you know, what what we can learn when more research is done on it. I also have another question. Uh, when you were talking a little bit earlier about people who may have certain challenges, whether, you know, they're, they have fibroids or they're experiencing PCOS, and then they may, you know, have a, a care provider say, okay, we'll come back when you're ready to have a baby and how problematic that can be. I was thinking about PCOS specifically because from my understanding, a lot of the common treatments for PCOS while people are managing it would be hormonal birth control um, and or focusing on something like weight loss if that's a factor that's impacting it. But for someone who say has PCOS and would like to conceive sooner rather than later where it may not make sense to get to take birth control at that time for them, how would they then manage their condition if that's the typical treatment for it? Yeah. So you're really, you know, you have to know what you're treating. So when women with PCOS are put on birth control pills, usually someone's not ovulating. So they're not releasing an egg. If you're not releasing an egg, even if you're not trying to get pregnant, you won't get a period. You'll get a withdrawal bleed, but it can be very sporadic. Those sporadic periods can be very heavy, leading to anemia, you know, need for emergent surgeries. So why put somebody on hormonal birth control? The reason why is because you want to regulate that cycle. Also, what women with PCOS need to know is they're at increased risk, about 10% increase for endometrial cancer because progesterone, which is released after you ovulate, 
protects you from that. And if you never ovulate, you never have any progesterone, you just have estrogen. Estrogen is stimulatory, just like it stimulates the fibroid, it can stimulate the endometrial lining, it can stimulate it to grow, and also to change and to change into cancer cells. So hormonal birth control can also be protective. So it can stop erratic bleeding, and it can prevent uh, cancer. But it also prevents you from ovulating if you were going to ovulate, and it will prevent you from getting pregnant. So women who want to get pregnant, that's not a viable option. What we want to do is to help you ovulate. And there are medications that can do that. So they stimulate your body to increase the uh, hormones that stimulate the ovaries and just just enough to then kind of push it to release an egg. And, And an OB guy can do that. A fertility specialist can do that. The medications luckily are very inexpensive, which I cannot say for IVF medication. So um, that would be the option for women who want to conceive, not to prevent ovulation, but to help you ovulate. But if you don't want to get pregnant, then birth control pills or hormonal contraceptions can also help prevent that because not every woman wants to get pregnant at a certain time. And that should be her right too. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the education there just around how it works and what's what's happening in your body mm-hmm. if you take it or if you don't. I think that's really important. And I think that that is a piece that's missing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's just not understanding like, okay, how does this work? And what is happening in my body when I do this? And yeah, because I think a lot of people are just placed on things. And I there's a lot of I mean, I, I'm on Instagram, but I had to cool it down because there's so many people like <laughs> bashing this and it's this whole birth control conspiracy thing. And, you know, I'm a really big proponent for just understanding like, I don't think birth control pills are evil. I use them quite frequently. They're part of actually an IVF cycle, but I know they're hormones. But I know that if I just put somebody on something and I never explain why they're taking it, it's like a malpractice, you know, like you have to be informed because I'm giving you something, but you're making the informed decision to take it. And when I come, when someone tells me in my office, I'm on X, Y, and Z, and they don't know why it's like, we've missed a step, you know? And then that's why women are saying, my doctor just put me on this and, you know, and it's like, but I don't disagree with you being on it. I just think that you need that education piece so that we all feel comfortable and understand the risk and the alternatives and the benefits. And hormonal contraception has a lot of benefits, but it does not cause a period. It causes a withdrawal bleed. It does not restore ovulation. You know, so and some people say, oh, it masks your symptoms. It can mask some things because you wouldn't know if you're not ovulating, but it also has some really good things. I've had like two or three young, young women, young women with endometrial cancer. Nobody should have to go through that. You know, so it's not that it's not a benefit, but the the education is lacking and you're going to get this pushback from the people who are you know, being told to take it. Yeah. Yeah. I I appreciate what you said there just about being pro-education and pro-informed decision. I think that's totally key. And if someone has been taking hormonal birth control, and this might vary from person to person, if someone, you know, has taken hormonal birth control and decides to stop, maybe maybe they stop because they want to stop, but likely they stop because they want to conceive. Does it take a while to start ovulating again for most people? And what does that process look like? Usually not. So once you stop, these hormones don't last in the system very long. 
But why people say sometimes they can mask things is because like if you've been on birth control pills for 10 years and I go back to my original comment, if you start a birth control at 30, you've been on it for 10 years and you're 40 and then you come to my office and I tell you your AMH is low, don't say the, the birth control pills caused me to go into menopause. No, your body was naturally aging as it would do anyway. And you wouldn't have known any different because you wouldn't have had a symptom of your periods becoming irregular because you're getting regular withdrawal bleeds. Because when you're taking a birth control pills, you have three weeks of active pills and then you have a week of placebo. And during that week of placebo, you'll get a period. So you will have a regular kind of cycle But if it was something that was going on, you wouldn't have known. But if you know already, hey, at 40, at 35, my eggs start to decline. At 40, if I haven't had kids yet, I should have been proactive at 30. But now I really need to just see what's going on. I can't just stay on these birth control pills forever because you know that there's a natural process. I think it was something in the media now about Kourtney Kardashian who is wanting to go through IVF and she's 42. And she said, or the quote that I'm hearing is, I took these IVF meds and they made me go into menopause. They don't make you go into menopause, right? And so we have to understand our our biological clock. Kourtney Kardashian had kids at a typical age and now she's in a new relationship and she wants more kids with her new partner. But at 42, it's hard. Your ovarian reserve is going to be much less. And so we just have to, like, we have to have those kind of conversations. But if we fear monger, then if I read that headline, I'm like, I'd never do IVF. It makes you go into menopause. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right? And we already don't want to go to the doctor. We already have fears. So it's like, for me, that kind of headline is dangerous. It's dangerous for our people. Yeah. Because we we don't trust. It's going to make me go into menopause. Right. And those clickbaity things just erode that trust even further. Right. You know, it's like, of course, the Kardashian wouldn't be telling nothing that's not true. (laughs) You know, you just, you know, so I am very, you know, like we have to, there's so much misinformation. These conversations are so important to have, to understand. We have to understand our bodies. We have to talk to each other. We have to educate our daughters, our nieces. You have to be empowered because if you're waiting for someone else, if you're waiting for your doctor just to say, hey, you know, at 35, this is what's going to happen. It may not happen. So we have to do it ourselves. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And that's what makes me grateful to have this space where I can, mm-hmm. you know, learn from people like you and get to share that with my community. Because I feel like if I have these questions, I'm sure, you know, other people have these questions too. And I'm grateful for the space. Yeah. Dr. Jones, this has been so informative. I feel like I've learned probably more about reproductive health and like my own reproductive system in the span of this conversation than all my health classes and everything else <laughs> combined. <laughs> but I, I would not say that I had top-notch uh, health class <laughs> education. No no shade to my my old school district. But before we we take off today, I would just love to, to have our audience know where they can find you, um, if they want to follow your work, potentially if they're, they're in Texas and, and would like to work with you, where can they find you? 
Yeah, so I am at Conceive Fertility Center in Dallas, Texas. We have offices in Frisco, Irving, and Dallas. Um, you can follow me on social media, though I'm taking a hiatus, okay, because these trolls getting on my nerves. Protect your mental health. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, it's at T. Jones IVFMD. Yeah, and we'd love to see anyone. We do virtual consults, you know, and even if you reach out to me on social media and you're not in my vicinity, I do keep a great network of other REIs, other black REIs that I'd be happy to link you to um, if someone is in need. That's incredible. I'm I'm so glad to hear that because I'm sure that we'll have people who will be interested in support in their areas. So I'll make sure that we link your information in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I hope today's episode was informative for you, especially if having biological children is something that you would like to do. It's important to understand what your options are. What really stuck out to me was talking about the experiences that Black birthing persons can have when it comes to fertility challenges, but being less likely to receive interventions and support and treatments. And I'm still sitting with that data point and really digesting it. My hope here is that you feel empowered with knowledge to make the best choices for you. Head to the show notes for more information about Dr. Tiffany Jones' work and head to balanceblackgirl.com for expanded show notes and a full transcript of today's episode. Thank you so much for our sponsors. Head to the show notes for special offers and coupon codes. And of course, thank you for listening today. Next week, we're talking to fertility researcher, Dr. Cleopatra, about lifestyle changes we can make to support our fertility outcomes and how we can minimize generational trauma being passed down through our lineage. It's going to be a good one, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it. Talk to you next week.